Well, Father, we are just grateful that we can celebrate the advent of your Son. Uh, this is uh, truly the celebration of a miracle where the Son of God took on flesh. And as we ponder um, this truth in the midst of all of the, uh, the shopping, the feasting, the regathering, uh, may we do so just ever cognizant of why you actually came to earth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of the most impactful Christmas novels of all time is A Christmas Carol by, oh my goodness, I just forgot, Charles Dickens. Thank you. Not Ebenezer Scrooge. That was in my mind and that did not sound right. By Charles Dickens about Ebenezer Scrooge. Uh, you know, the greedy miser who's transformed through a series of dreams into a, a generous patron and is a, is a brand new man. And this is really a, an interesting story because of, of the times that it came from. Uh, it was written in 1843 during a time of economic, um, well, stagflation. There's actually deflation that was going on. And so it was... You know, as a pound was gaining in value, it was to a miser's interest to hold on to as much money for as long as possible at the expense of the poor. And Charles Dickens was actually a man who came from poverty. Uh, he had his father was arrested and sent to debtor's prison, and he took up a job in a blacking factory. Think black shoe policy blacking factory uh, when he was 12 and he had worked 12 hour days and in return he got about $45 a week and so he was a man who was acquainted with poverty and with suffering and and he even thought about writing a pamphlet entitled an appeal to the people of England on behalf of a poor man's child but instead he decided to write a Christmas carol a creative appeal to the conscience of a nation uh, to try to remedy this great plight of poverty. And when he did so, he actually, uh, that book really transformed the face of Christmas from a, a religious holiday to a humanitarian holiday. And there's a lot to admire about what Charles Dickens did. I mean, he saw a real need. He creatively sought to address it. Uh, there's a little bit of debate, was he advocating socialism? And the answer is no. Scrooge did not awaken from his dream and demand government confiscation and redistribution. Rather, he gave out of a generosity, out of a, a changed Christmas spirit. And so, and, and he even drew attention to the fact that there is, you know, evil in this world, right? There are people who are suffering. There are people who are oppressed. There are people who are impoverished. And Charles Dickens wanted to find some way to bring relief to those who are suffering, which is a good thing. In fact, they say that charitable giving increased after the publication of A Christmas Carol. But did it work? Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, for the poor you will always have with you. Right? There have always have been social ills. There's always been injustice. There's always been oppression. And there's always, well, at least recently, there has been a, a deep desire to try to fix this broken world. 
And there's different ways that they go about doing so with the right education, the right economic system, the right worldview, the right religion. We can write all the problems. But can a broken world fix a broken world? Can a broken world fix a broken world? We've been trying for centuries and for millennia, and has it ever worked? You see, the only way to fix a broken world is through uh, the ministrations of somebody outside this world. Ultimately, uh, to beat back all of the societal evils, there needs to be an invasion. One which we just heard about when Scott read the Christmas scripture from Luke. I'll just read it to you again, part of it, just for refreshment. Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar, Augustus, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to, uh, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now this does not sound like an invasion, does it? When you think about invasion, you think about D-Day, right? According to the Guinness Book of World's Records, one of my favorite books when I was a kid, it was considered the greatest invasion of all time. There were 38 convoys, 745 ships, which supported 4,066 landing craft carrying 185,000 men and two, or I guess 20,000 vehicles and 347 minesweepers. It was supported by 18,000 paratroopers, and 1,087 aircraft. The greatest invasion of human history, right? Or so you think. Or with this invasion, there was one baby. So what made this invasion so great? Well, turn with me to the text that we're going to cover today, where we get an explanation of the invasion. Other passages describe the incarnation this is a passage that explains the incarnation. By the way, incarnation means in the flesh, right? You think of carnivore, one of my favorite words. Meat eater, love it. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, for those of you who are familiar with the book of Hebrews, I know a lot of you uh, have studied it. It's written to a, a book of 
Hebrew Christians, Christians with a Jewish background who for whatever reason were, uh, were waffling in their faith. Uh, it, it could be that there was family pressure from their Jewish mothers and fathers to go back to the family faith. Um, it could be that the increased persecution was drawing them to a safer religion that was socially acceptable in Israel and in the Roman Empire. Uh, it could be that they were just embarrassed by a religion that celebrates a, a crucified Messiah. But whatever the case, they were waffling. Uh, the death of Christ was almost a source of embarrassment. And in this passage, uh, the author of Hebrews makes it very clear that this is not an embarrassment, but a, a celebration. That this invasion, so to speak, transformed human history. It was an invasion that overcame the greatest problems known to man. And if you were to ask somebody on the street, what is man's greatest problem? Uh, they might point to uh, COVID, global warming, injustice, lack of education. But ultimately, what is man's greatest problem? Well, it's death, which is caused by sin. Our greatest problem is death. And for years, uh, people have been trying to push back death. But if you find the cure for cancer, all you're going to do is find that there's going to be a higher rate of people dying from heart disease, right? Because everyone's still going to die. You can delay it, but that is man's greatest problem. And all that comes with death, right? Which is fear and trepidation, disease. That is man's greatest problem. And we've been trying to solve it for millennia, and it has never been beaten back until 2,000 years ago on the cross. But that journey to the cross started with an invasion when the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, took on flesh. And so what we're going to do today is just spend some time considering this concept of an invasion. We're going to look at the opposition to the invasion, the triumph of the invasion, and the culmination of the invasion. And ultimately, my goal for you is to really celebrate this Christmas with a hope which will not disappoint. Uh, to have some Christmas perspective on the world, and so that as we celebrate, we can also give an account for the hope that's within us, which is, through the incarnation, there was an invasion that defeated the true enemies of mankind. So let's talk about the opposition to the invasion. Who are the true enemies? Right When the Allied forces stormed the beaches at Normandy, they did so because the continent of Europe was captive to the Nazi regime led by Adolf Hitler, who were committing unspeakable atrocities and, and crimes. When the Son of God took on flesh and became a baby 2,000 years ago, there was also a world that was in opposition to him. We read about it in verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I want to draw your attention to two realities. You have 
death and you have the devil. You have death and the devil. Now, those are two words that are not often discussed in our context, are there? How often do people actually talk about death in a meaningful way? If you were to ask people, have you ever seen somebody die? I would imagine that a lot of people would say no. Because death is something that happens someplace else. It's something that happens in the hospital, something that happens in the nursing home, where it used to happen in your own home. We have a, a culture that's death illiterate. Secondly, the devil, well, is more of a joke, right? The devil made me do it. We may, uh, there might be an infatuation with the demonic, but to have this idea of an actual, a fallen angel who is leading a worldwide revolt against God and is actually overseeing all those who are outside of God's care is something that this world does not talk about. But here he makes it very clear that these two realities are at the center of the opposition to Jesus. These were the enemies that he came to defeat. Now, we know that the devil and death are are intimately tied together. Remember, it was the devil that tempted Eve, who then tempted Adam, to sin. And through that event, death entered into this world. And this is why Jesus makes it very clear to his opponents that they are of their father, the devil. He says in John 8, 44, you have your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Right? Beginning takes you back to the garden. He introduced death to humanity. He was someone who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. He introduced death, and he uses death to control this planet. Look at verse 15. All those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, we read slavery in our culture. We understand the evils of slavery. Do you have your will subject to the sting of a whip? Do you have to give away your human autonomy to somebody else is... is a a wretched and miserable fate. And that is true, isn't it? But what he says is that this humanity is subject to the fear, to the slavery of death, the fear of death. You ever thought about this for a moment? How much the fear of death really controls people? I think the COVID epidemic, right? It's a It's a national fight to try to prevent death from COVID. All the policies and people willingly comply because they fear death. We had a bunch of tragic tornadoes in the Mid-South. And because of that fear of death, there's almost this idea that we need to take actions with global warming to prevent tornadoes from ever happening again in December, right? We We need to stop this. We need to do something about it. We can't just let people die. You see, if you get people scared and you bring out the fear of death, they're easily controllable. And this, uh, and there's a reason why I think we fear death. I'm going to give you five reasons. Number one, we fear a loss of mastery. We fear a loss of mastery. 
When you go through the throes of death, you lose control of your body. You lose control of your breathing. You lose control of your bladder. You, can tr you, you are basically in a helpless state. This is part of the reason why euthanasia sounds so attractive to so many people that at least I can time my death and die on my terms. But it's never really their terms, right? You can't live longer, but you can shorten it a bit. Right? There is a loss of mastery. If, if you love control, you're going to hate death. Secondly, you fear incompleteness and, and, and failure. Right? There, there's so much for me to live for. I haven't done this. I, ha I haven't gone through my bucket list. I got to visit a, a, a gentleman in the hospital um, this past week. He was uh, hit with COVID very hard. And he was from Wichita and was transferred to an open bed in Emporia and wanted to call a pastor. And, and I just remember, um, you know, putting on, you know, the, the shield, the mask. I mean, you know, they, they do you right in there, right? I think it's impossible to get COVID, which I'm thankful for. Um, but he was telling me that he has a nine-year-old son and he doesn't want to die because there's so much he wants to do with him. He wants to raise his son. And the fact is, when death comes, that's the final chapter of your story. When that door is shut, it, it never opens again. There's fear of separation from your loved ones. I mean, all of us have been touched by death in some way where it's taken, you know, people are taken from you. Well, when you die, you're taken from everybody else. All those relationships are over. Fourth, it leads to the realm of unfamiliarity. You don't know what it's like to die until you die. And unless somebody comes back from the dead and tells you what's on the other side, it's all ignorance. Hold on to that thought. And then fifth, death leads to judgment. It's appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. And, and Christianity is not the only religion that teaches post-mortem judgment. Will you be reincarnated into a cow or a cricket? There's a big difference between the two. Will you be reincarnated to, into a cow in Texas or India? Huge difference between the two. <laughs> right? Good news, you're going to be a cow. Bad news is you're going to be in Texas. Sorry. <laughs> Should have been better. So there's abundant reasons to fear death, and this drives us to slavery, and impacts people more than we know. You hear about the YOLO, right? You only live once. In light of this reality of death, I need to live it up. That uh, You might have a fear of a doctor because the doctor might tell you that there's something wrong with you. And I know that's irrational because there is something wrong with you, whether or not the doctor identifies it, but at least they can do about something about it. Uh, you, fear, you feel a mysterious lump and you're thinking, uh-oh. You stay awake at night wondering if your, your kids uh, are going to be safe. You have people who will travel hundreds of miles and give thousands of dollars to a religious charlatan. They will dump a bunch of money and go to, to Mexico for a mysterious treatment because maybe this one will work. And then there's just the fear of death, which is the fuel that drives false religions. We already talked about karma or, or just the idea that you need to give these sacraments or do these good deeds or, or go to Mecca or practice you know, this ritual to, to preserve your life. I read about a... Uh, a woman in India, uh, an Indian pastor approached her. She was sobbing. 
And she explained that her husband has tuberculosis and he's the breadwinner of the family. And if he dies of this disease, the whole family will not make it. And so to heal her husband, she decided to sacrifice her most precious possession to the river god. In that case, it was her firstborn son. Right? Fear of death enslaved her into giving up her, her son. See, death controls us more than we know. And we try to fight it with technology. We might try to fight it with education. We might try to fight it with public policy. But none of those things will defeat the dark power of death, which the devil uses to control people. And that is why there needed to be an invasion. That's the opposition that Jesus faced. And now we move to the triumph of the invasion. We'll review 14 through 18 again. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, this is, as I mentioned, one of the most significant text about the incarnation, about Christ becoming in the flesh. And we read in verse 14 that since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that the children are animated with skin and bones and organs and everything that makes a human human, the Son of God had to become like them as well. He had to take on flesh and blood for it, from eternity past, Jesus was a, a spirit being, right? God is spirit. But he decided to take on flesh and blood for the sake of his children. And by his children, well, Hebrews 2.13, he quotes Isaiah 8.18, Behold, I and the children God has given me. There is an idea that there is a group of children, those who will have the, uh, be the, have, share in the faith of Abraham, right? All those who believe as Abraham believed, have the right to become his children. That Jesus was on a rescue mission to save his children who were subject to the curse of death that Satan was using to control them. Now, remember in the garden, God gave Adam and Eve one rule. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now naturally they did sin. And therefore there was a death sentence. Now what's interesting is how this decree that God gave is used as a cudgel to beat the children of Abraham. You guys know the story of Daniel and the lion's den? Okay, remember, 
a bunch of jealous sub-rulers go up to King uh, Darius and they say, we've got a great idea. For the next 30 days, you'll love this king, people can only pray to you. They can only worship you. This is a way that they'll prove their loyalty. What do you think? And if they don't do it, we'll just throw them into the lion's den. What do you think, king? Should that be the, is that a good rule? And he says, yes. Yes, I decree it. This is the law of the Medes and Persians. And so they capture Daniel, or they catch Daniel in the act and bring him before the king and say, king, you made a rule. You made a rule. And you can't violate your own rule. And the king is all distressed of how can I get around this rule that I made and yet preserve the life of Daniel. And you know how the story ends. He puts Daniel in the lion's den. God protects his life. But you have the idea of the, the enemies of the king use a rule that he made to beat the people that he loves. God made a rule that when you eat of this tree, you shall die, and Satan takes that rule and it beats the people that God loves. And so, God had a plan. He had a plan to... Uh, so that they wouldn't have to die that day, he, he kills some animals, right? When you take the skin off an animal, they die. They die to cover their shame. Uh, he began to implement a, a sacrificial system where animals would be sacrificed as substitutes for his people. But Hebrews 10.4 tells us, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, Satan can come up to God and said, listen, you told Adam and Eve that they were to die, not Bobo over there, right? They were the ones who are sentenced to death. You can't just have animals die for humans. Human sin deserves a human death. Therefore, he had to be made like his brother's in every respect. The only acceptable substitute is a human substitute. And human in every way, which would include birth. Uh, I'm an avid fan of biographies. And one thing that's an interesting theme in a biography is they bring up the childhood. And the childhood explains the man. Right? Abe Lincoln was born in a what? A log cabin, right? That explains the man. You can't know a man without his childhood. Therefore, God couldn't just send a fully formed Jesus into earth and say, okay, let's get this crucifixion over with. He had a, a childhood. Everything that makes a human a human it, it was true of him. He was a fertilized egg. He went through birth. He had a mother who nursed him. He changed his oil diapers. He learned how to walk. He learned how to talk. He, he went through the embarrassment of puberty and having his voice crack at weird and awkward times. Right, Jesus became flesh and blood so that he could be the sacrifice and he can offer a sacrifice as a high priest. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those 
who are being tempted. For those of you who studied Hebrews, you know that one of the central themes is the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the high priest. He is a perfect priest. Now, every once in a while, I'll run into somebody who will call me a priest, and I have to explain that it is true, because I believe in the priesthood of all believers, but I'm not a priest in the way you think I'm a priest. Right? When you think of a priest, a priest is kind of a mediator. Right? He brings warring parties together. Uh, sometimes I might be a priest in the counseling room with a warring married couple, right? Where you try to help them understand each other and kind of come together. Uh, in this case, in, in many religions, you have a priest um, that is to help bring together hostile parties. You have a Hindu priest, a Buddhist priest. Uh, you might have a Catholic priest. In the Old Testament, you had a priest that represent man to God and God to man because there are some problems here. One, God is holy. He is separate. He is unique. He, he can't be around the presence of evil. And secondly, man is not holy. He's imperfect in every way. Well, not in every way, but everything is stained by sin. So to bring us together, there had to be a priest. And in the Old Testament, you would have a priest who would go through these rituals of cleansing and sacrifice so that for the brief duration he's in the presence of God, he would be acceptable. But Jesus is our perfect high priest in that he never sinned. He lived a righteous life that was perfectly acceptable to God. And as a result, he was able to make an offering and it is able to be the offering. Look at verse 17. The high priest offered a propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, propitiation is not a word we use every day. It's not like, hey, son, can you propitiate me for a second? That almost sounds like a drink, right? Drink some propitiation, you'll be fine. But propitiation is a religious term, is the amount of compensation needed to satisfy divine wrath. You live in the South Pacific, there's a volcano that goes up that will go off and destroy the island unless you sacrifice a virgin. And so they would sacrifice a virgin as propitiation to appease the wrath of the volcano god. Now in this case, there is a god who demands a death sentence for all those who have sinned against him. And the propitiation is the amount of compensation needed to appease the wrath of God. And so Jesus offered a propitiation, not in taking somebody else and sacrificing them, not in taking an animal and sacrificing them, but in offering himself to endure divine wrath on the cross. He made a propitiation. Remember, the wages of sin is death. God demands the death of someone, and Jesus says, I will be that someone. I will be that substitute. But that's not the only thing that he does. That's not the only thing that he does. He is also a priest. He's also a priest. In Hebrews 2.9, but we see 
Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Became lower than the angels, became a man to taste death for everyone. He was the offering. Hebrews 9.26 He has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. One sacrifice, himself, was enough to atone for the sins of his people. You see, previously, the best the Hebrews could hope for is a once-a-year sacrifice so that God would delay his judgment for one year, and then they'd have to do that process again and again and again and again. But here, Jesus says, one sacrifice is all it takes of what it needs to be reconciled with God forever. Now, I have uh, often had the chance to you know, share the gospel with Catholics, and, and Roman Catholics get a lot of things right. They get the Trinity right. They get the incarnation right. Uh, their categories of sin are often correct. But this is the thing that they are missing, and, and this is what I tell them. I tell them that according to your tradition and your religious teachings. Should you ever commit a mortal sin, what will happen to you? Well, I'll fall out of saving grace. Until what? Until I can go to a priest for the sacrament of of confession. And then they're right with the Lord. If they die, they, they go to heaven. But should they commit another mortal sin, they have to do that process over and over again, right? So they ultimately don't have peace with God, do they? They have a ceasefire. And Jesus is not a priest that offers a ceasefire. He's a priest who offers peace, perfect, lasting peace that will be yours forever. You see, and and as a priest, he not only offers himself, he offers continual intercession. He will become your perfect high priest. You see, we read in 14, verse 14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. What he does is he has released death's grip on you so that you are no longer a slave to the fear of death. He is interceding for you to release you from the prison of the fear of death. Now, now how does this happen? Remember the five reasons why people fear death? One, we fear a loss of mastery. Well, this is afforded to Abraham's children, those who by faith share in the faith of Abraham and follow Jesus as a risen Lord. He becomes their master. Death is not your master. Jesus is your master, and he's a much better master. You don't need to fear about the loss of control because Jesus, your master, has perfect control over the situation, even things as tragic as your own death. Two, you might fear incompleteness or failure. Well, your days are numbered and your life is not accomplished and ended here. It will continue on in heaven where you'll continue to do great things for the Lord. Three, you fear separation from your loved ones. Well, when you are in Christ... Those who are also in Christ will be in heaven and join you someday. And get this, you'll have a better relationship with them on that day than you do right now. 
Fourth, it leads us to the realm of unfamiliarity. Well, Jesus died and he came back. He tells us what's on the other side so that we can have comfort knowing that we're crossing over to be with him, to be in heaven. If you want to know what it's like on the other side for Christians, read Revelation. Five, death leads to judgment, not for Christians. Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Death has been defeated at every single level. You don't have to fear death. I mean, isn't that liberating? Now, there are times when we might waver, when there might be some doubt, worry, anxiety, and some fear, where we might be tempted like the Hebrew audience was tempted in this book to maybe you know, pull back away from Christ. But Christ conquered death and he plans on protecting his gains and he does that by continual intercessory ministry for you. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. I mean, before Jesus went to the cross, he asked the Lord, if there's any other way, now's a good time to let me know. He understood betrayal and pain and hurt and all those disappointments so that when you experience something that shakes your faith, that shakes your confidence in the Lord, that causes the fear of death to all of a sudden rise up again, you can go to Jesus and he says, I understand. And he'll pray for you, minister to you. Because this is what Jesus wants to do. He wants to redeem a people for his own possession. He came into this world to invade, to invade, didn't he? As one baby... But while he was here, his intention has always been to raise up an army. Because this invasion that started 2,000 years ago actually continues to this day and will actually culminate at the end of days. And that brings us to our last point, the culmination of the invasion. Hebrews 9.28, as you keep on reading, this is the promise. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly, who are eagerly waiting for him. So Jesus on the cross dealt a death blow to sin, mortally wounded it. And when his kingdom comes, he's going to finish it off. You shoot the buck, you stalk it, while it's still kicking and maybe thrashing a little bit, you finish the job. And Revelation 19, 11 through 16 actually describes this. Now, I want to say something before I read this. Brothers and sisters, you actually make an appearance in this passage, okay? I want, to, want you to look for yourselves in this passage. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, with following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down all the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the angels of the wrath of God of the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Now in this final invasion, I think the context points out that who are the armies of heaven? It's the redeemed saints who join him in this final wave. But in the meantime, we're in the middle of the second wave. We are growing the army. We are fighting the fear of death, which happens every single time that we share the gospel. We are offering them a peace treaty with the final victor who will one day conquer this world. And as a result, there are really two sides, those who still cling to the darkness, who would prefer death as their master. Now, they may not say that, They just want to run their own life and be in control of their own life. They want to believe that they are the captains of their fate and the masters of their own destiny. And yet, death will reach them at some point in time. It's a trick. And then there are those who live for the transcendent purpose of being a part of this invasion. And so the question is, which which story kind of grips your heart? Is it the story that humans can change a broken world? If you just commit to this education policy or this technology or this social awareness, uh, we can find some sort of higher purpose. We can find the cure for cancer. We can rid the world of racism. We can wipe out poverty, which are all great things, by the way, and they will be done. But if you're a student of history, you know that this broken world will never accomplish it. Uh, Some people just kind of give up on finding a higher purpose altogether and they just want to eat, drink, and be merry. Just live for the day, have that nice vacation, vacation, not really think about these deep things. But when you look at the miracle of Christmas, you see that there is an invasion that is going on. That there is, when we pray, um, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, We're asking for that third wave to take place. And those who are involved in the second wave are going to look forward to that third wave. And so this Christmas, this would be my my challenge to you. It's not to think of this as like some sweet story that gives us hope and makes us feel good and and occasions giving gifts and prizes and presents and food to everyone. But this is an actual invasion that started and will be completed. You are actually in the story. Did you get that? There is a story where you are a player, you are a character. And you have to decide, am I going to be a part of the antagonist or the protagonist? Which side of the story will you be on? And if you join the invasion, you will reap the fruits of the invasion. When you join the fight, you'll share in the victory. Let's pray. Well, Father, I I come before you just grateful for the opportunity to just reflect on what you have done and this process that started 2,000 some years ago when when Jesus Christ took on flesh so that he can become like his children in every respect, flesh and blood, and offer a sacrifice 
a propitiation for our sins so that we can be right with you so that the fear of death will be destroyed. And I pray that we will take this reality and confidently move forward knowing that we will be triumphant with you someday. And Lord, we look forward to the second advent when the cloud shall be rolled back as a scroll and that we shall see you in glory. And Lord, perhaps some of us might join you in glory to reclaim this world for you. In Jesus' name, amen.